All right, Genesis chapter 18. In November of uh, 2019, several of us had the privilege of going to the Holy Land in Israel. I never thought that would have ever happened in my lifetime. I never planned on it. It never even occurred to me that I would ever have the opportunity to go there. I'm very thankful that I got to go. One of the places I really liked a lot was a place called Abraham's Tent. Very interesting place, located in a desert-like area. And they served us a meal in that tent of, uh, I think it was homemade flat pita bread and other things. You could sit in the tent and you could see, at the edge of the tent, you could see outside of the tent into the desert area, uh, surrounding area. I'll never forget, as uh, I reclined at the table, leaning upon Stephen and Tim Dagnott, <laughs> as they did back in the olden days, back in the time of Christ, like Jesus and his disciples did. And I know Tim will always treasure that moment. We've talked about that many times. <laughs> in Genesis 18, we have the story regarding Abraham's tent. Uh, this section is governed, it's very important you know, to, you'll know this, it's governed by the first statement, the first verse that's made uh, where it says the Lord appeared to him, the Lord appeared to Abraham, or Yahweh appeared to Abraham. I think the term Yahweh is used about nine times throughout this chapter. Uh, the writer wants us to know right away from the start that this is what, there's, so there's no confusion that the Lord, Yahweh, is making an appearance here to Abraham, and then as we go through the verses, it'll unfold how that actually takes place. It's the only time that in the Old Testament that the Lord's appearance happens exactly like this. It's a very unusual uh, situation. So before we get into the heart of the message, let's look at some of the details of the appearance, this appearance. But let's, let verse 1 be your guide. Keep that in mind. In this chapter, the Lord appears to Abraham, and he will occupy Abraham's attention throughout the entire chapter. This is the, thir the third time that the Lord uh, makes an appearance uh, to Abraham that's recorded as such. Genesis 12, verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abraham when he was 75 years old, it says. In chapter 17, verse 1, when Abraham was 99 years old, it says the Lord appeared to him. Now, again, in chapter 18, verse 1, I'm only talking about the times where it says, it uses the word appear, by the way. The appearances happen from time to time in the Bible uh, because because something's about to take place. Uh, this is an important event. An important event is about to take place as far as the Lord's concerned. The Lord appears to Abraham for the purpose, and understand this about this chapter, for the purpose of announcing what is to happen in the near future. That's why he is making his appearance. Now, the place of this appearance is by, look at verse 1, is by the Oaks of Mamre. Now, if you recall from Genesis chapter 13, verse 18, the Oaks of Mamre is in a city called Hebron, and the oak trees are named after a guy named Mamre, who was an alliance, he was an ally, rather, of Abraham, chapter 14, verse 13. And uh, they were together in this alliance. Hebron's in the southern part of Israel. That's where David, first of all, set his headquarters up as when he was first king for seven years. And what is Abraham doing when these three heavenly guests appear? Is he deeply in thought? Is he deeply in meditation? Is he praying, maybe? Some people think that he is. It doesn't say anything like that at all. What his thoughts were, we'll never know. What, what he's doing, his actions, uh, we can definitely know. It says he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. Now, you might first think, well, Abraham was a lazy man. No, he's not being lazy. He's not being shiftless at all. The people of that area took a rest, as many even today do, during that time of the day because it was hot. It was very hot. And it was, in fact, it was dangerous. It wasn't that they were afraid of getting a suntan. 
uh, during that time of the day. It was dangerous. The heat was dangerous, dangerous to work at that time of the day. So they take a break. We find Abraham doing what everyone uh, was doing in that area, taking a, taking a rest, sitting in the shade, taking it easy, maybe on the verge of a siesta. All the cattle are doing the same thing. All the donkeys, uh, all the camels, all the herdsmen, they're taking a break from the midday scorching heat. Everybody's in chill mode right now, or they, they wish they were in chill mode at least. Very hot. It's during this time that, of the day that Abraham, look at verse 2, he lifted up his eyes and looked. When you see that phrase in the Bible, you're ready to expect something to happen and something major is about to happen, and then you add the word behold to it, and Abraham is in for quite a surprise. He suddenly sees three men standing opposite him. Now, what would you do if you were at the, by this, under your shade? Maybe you have a tree in your yard. You're sitting there after you've mowed the yard, and all of a sudden you look up. You look up, and three men are standing in front of you. How would you react? This is what he's faced with. Now, if, they had, if he had seen them approach from a distance, he doesn't say that he did. He doesn't say that at all. He had, uh, it just says, furthermore, why would they have been traveling at this time of the day? Very hot, very miserable. Nobody's traveling right now. Everybody's taking a break. But he ha- there's a sudden appearance. They're all of a sudden, they're there. And it shows that something extraordinary is about to happen, something extraordinary on a very ordinary, hot, blazing day under the sun. Now, who are these three mysterious men? Are they the three kings that this Christmas song talks about? Is that who these guys are? Well, the interesting thing is there's no information given, given at all here. Nothing is said here at this point in the narrative as to who they are. It doesn't say anything right now. Verse 1 said Yahweh appears, but we would only find, we'll only find out gradually as, our wake, as we work our way through the chapter. We'll find out, but keep in mind, again, back to verse 1, this has something to do with Yahweh. Fortunately, we have the luxury of looking ahead, something Abraham didn't have the opportunity to do. We can find out who they were. And when we put two and two together, or rather when we put one and two together, we come up with three. Now, what do I mean by that? First, again, we know according to verse 1, Yahweh has appeared. Verse 2, we have three men. We find out as we go through these chapters, the Lord is actually one of the three men. He appears as a man. Look at verse 13, verse 14, other verses. Verse 13, for example, talks about the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, all of a sudden the Lord's talking to Abraham. It says the Lord. Verse 14 uh, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? It says again. And verse 22 has two of the men leaving and heading to Sodom while the Lord remains behind. Verse 22 says, Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Three men, the Lord and two men at this point. And then go to chapter 19, verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. So when we put all this together... The three men are the Lord and two angels. That's who they are. You'll, you'll see that clearer as we cover all these verses. Now, about as to the timing of their visit, notice when it takes place, the three men show up when Abraham is not busy with the routine of his day. The Lord deliberately comes at this time, so Abraham has opportunity to serve him. He has opportunity to converse with him. And can I say, as I read this, can I say the Lord is very courteous and gracious? By the way, as you read these first eight verses, you're going to see... Lord is very courteous, very gracious as to how he handles his as as he handles this situation here. Now it's my opinion and that of many others that Abraham is not, he does not know who these three men are for the time being. He doesn't know who they are. I don't believe he knows who they are. He's gonna find out 
through the hours we continue, but not at first. Not at first. That should not surprise us because when has the Lord ever made an appearance like this? Never so far. But more will be said concerning that in a minute. Now, having established the facts of the Lord's appearance, I want to make two main observations, at least this week. After the, fir- uh, the first part has to do with the heart of God's servant. That's the first observation, the heart of God's servant. And the second, mess- the second one has to do with the message to God's servant, the message to God's servant. So first of all, and I've got notes in the back, the heart of God's servant, that's found in the first eight verses. The first eight verses, you have to understand something here, are an introduction to both chapters 18 and 19. Those chapters go together. It's the, cha- the first eight verses are not the main emphasis of this section, but it's helpful to our lives as believers. Now, I'm going to spend some time on this because I want us to take a peek into the heart of Abraham. I want us to see his heart because the actions that he shows here reveal what his heart's like. The actions that he gives here flow out of a heart of a true servant. We're going to see a true servant in action. Abraham is a true servant of both the Lord and of people. Now, notice, first of all, his humble spirit. Verses 2 and 3, his humble spirit. When he lifted up, when Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. He's humble. How do we recognize his humility? Well, by his actions and also by his words. First of all, by his actions. Notice his action of running in verse 2. Watch Abraham spring into action when the guests appear. All of a sudden, there's three three men there. What happens next? Verse 2, he ran from the tent door to meet them. Not, there's no dilly-dallying around. Not bad for a 100-year-old man. 99, years old, chapter 17, 17. He, Abraham says, I'm 100 years old. He's not hobbling around on a cane like that. He's running to meet them. Now, how many men do you know that are 99 or 100 years old that are running anywhere? How many do you know that are jogging or trotting or maybe they're hobbling along, let alone running. Abram's right. This is Abraham we're talking about, a man of great standing. You have to understand, it's a man of great standing in the community. People know who he is. They understand who he is. He's extremely wealthy. He's established his reputation. He has 318 servants. We read about that earlier. He's proven himself in battle in chapter 14 when he went after those kings from the east and, and took care of business. 100 years old. Now, respect's to be shown to the elderly, but here Abraham is showing respect to other people. He's running. That, shows, that, that in itself shows us great humility. And then in verse 2, he's bowing. Look at verse 2. He bowed himself to the earth. Again, a 100-year-old man ready to give preference to other people. Abraham's nephew, Lot, is going to do this, a similar thing in chapter 19, verse 1, when he meets the guest also. He's going to bow down, it says, to, to them. This is what they did back then in the ancient Near East, Genesis 33.3. Jacob is going to bow to the ground seven times when he meets his brother Esau. So you can see by his actions that he's showing great humility. You can also see his heart of humility by his words. Look at verse 3. He says, "Uh, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not not pass your servant by. The way he refers to himself versus the way he refers to others tells us that he has a servant mentality. There's a shifting back and forth from the singular to the plural. By the way, this is very interesting. Some verses are addressed in the singular, some in the plural. In verse 3, he says, My Lord, 
You may see that capitalized in your translation. You may see it not capitalized. My Lord is in the singular. So he's addressing one of the three men who apparently stands out among the three, or he's addressing all of them by a singular title. Many Hebrew scholars say you can translate the, the, the term my Lord here as sir, which is a polite form of address. Now there's a debate, I know some of you are already thinking about this, there's, there's a debate over whether Abraham actually recognizes the Lord as the Lord himself at this point, or this is just a polite address to show respect to his honored guest. Now, I've given, taken all things together, I personally do not think Abraham recognizes that one of the men is Yahweh at this point, at this point in the story, in the narrative. In a very similar grammar, Genesis 19:18, Lot calls two men who are angels as my lords as, with a small L. I also don't know how Abraham could recognize one of these men as Yahweh since they're all three men. They appear as three men. I don't know how he would understand that one of these is Yahweh at this point, and if he did recognize the Lord at this point, I don't know why he would offer him food to eat. It seems odd. Uh, food to eat and water to clean himself, and as the story progresses, it's going to become clear that Abraham and all of us know, will find out that, that one of these men is indeed the Lord, but I think it's a gradual understanding, a gradual unfolding as we, as we go through these verses. Now, in verses 3 and 5, Abraham thinks of himself as a servant of all three of these men, okay? In verse 3, he says he's a servant of one, possibly, or maybe the group together, your servant is in the singular. Verse 4, yourselves, I'm a servant of, of uh, yourselves in, in plural. Verse 5, your servant is in the plural. Again, Abraham is a servant of all three of these men. So this back and forth from singular to plural in Abraham's speech is very interesting to look into. And then in verse 3, Abraham pleads for them, to stay, because I want you guys to stay. If you found favor in my sight, if I found favor in your sight, rather, rather, do not pass your servant by. In other words, stay here. Hang around here. Allow me the honor and the privilege of serving you. I want to give you refreshment. I want to take care of your needs. Give me that opportunity. Now, Abraham's humility shows he's an unselfish man. Unselfish. He's put, he puts others first. That's how he thinks. That's in line, by the way, with what it says of Christ in Philippians 2.7, Christ took on the form of a bondservant. And then you see those verses in the Gospels where Jesus says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give, to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So that's, the, that's his humble spirit. Secondly, notice his hospitable attitude, verses 4 to 8, his hospitable attitude. Verse 4, Abraham says, Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and, let, and rest yourselves under the tree. I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Abraham quickly, or rather hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make breads. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them, and, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. <clears throat> you, you are about to see some serious southern hospitality. Right now, I say southern hospitality because Abraham lives, lives in the southern part of Israel and Judah. It's going to be called later, later on Judah. One of the things you need to understand about what's happening here in this context is the practice of hospitality in the ancient Near East. They were known for this. All the actions that Abraham takes reflect this idea of hospitality. It doesn't mean it was practiced by everybody in the ancient Near East. For example, in the next chapter, 
you're not going to see, <clears throat> you're going to see one guy showing hospitality, but the rest of the town, Sodom, they're not going to show any hospitality at all. It's not going to happen. But more than a customary practice, Abraham himself is, a, is an unselfish man. He's a generous man. We saw that in Genesis 13. You remember in Genesis 13 when there was strife between Abraham and his nephew Lot and, and the herdsmen, and they had tons of cattle, and they didn't have enough land. And so because they shared the same land, there wasn't enough room. And it's kind of like if you had two or three families in the same house, and then after all, what would happen? I can tell you what would happen. Arguments, fights, bickering, that's exactly what would happen, and that's what happened here. And so Abraham makes the generous offer in Genesis 13, takes it upon himself to speak up first, and he says to Lot, you choose first, Lot, take whatever land you want, whatever's left over, I'll take, but I'm giving you first choice. So more than a custom, yes, it was a custom, Abraham is an unselfish man. Hospitality is something ingrained in him, but you know what? That's what happens when you know the Lord. That's what happens when you, know, you become an unselfish person. You wanna, you're not fighting for your rights. You're yielding up your rights to him, and you're saying, I'm here to serve the Lord. I'm here to help others, help others grow in grace. I'm here to, here to love the saints. And as a growing believer, you're letting the mind of Christ drive you, drive your actions. Like Philippians 2, once again, uh, which says Christ was the most humble of servants. This is the height of unselfishness that Christ offered. That's how we should follow in his steps. Verse 4, Abraham offers them water so they can wash their feet from the dust that has accumulated. And that's what would happen. And you remember in John 13, what did Jesus do? He washed his disciples' feet. Now, apparently, Abraham thinks this is a quick social visit. He says, after you are refreshed, you may go on. You can go on your way. I just want to take care of your, your, your needs here. You can go on your way after that since you have visited your servant. You've passed by your, literally, you've passed by your servant. As far as Abraham is concerned, these three men are just passing through. But there is far more to this visit than just a quick shout-out to Abraham, passing by to say hi to Abraham. But Abraham does not yet know the purpose of this visit. Now, in verse 5, the three men give him permission to show us hospitality. See what it says in verse 5 at the end of the verse? So do as you have said. Now, in this whole section, you can tell Abraham is wasting no time in getting things ready. There's no time wasted. Look at the action of verbs. This is very interesting. In this section, verse 2, Abraham is running to meet the guest. In verse 6, he hurries into the tent. In verse 6, he instructs Sarah to quickly prepare the food. He's probably got everybody all hyper at this point. Verse 7, Abraham also ran to the herd. <laughs> verse 7, the servant, who's a young boy or young man, he hurries to prepare the calf. Abraham's got him all wound up. Abraham is getting his exercise in the heat of the day. Not a good practice. It's very dangerous to be doing all this. This is actually hospitality on steroids. This is serious hospitality. Verse 8. Look at verse 8. He serves them himself. He brings them curds, yogurt of sorts. The milk is sweet milk. He also brings calf meat. Now, what started out as a bite to eat, look at verse 5. Verse 5, I'll bring you a piece of bread. You may refresh yourselves. Well, that's what it started out as. But it ends up being a full-course meal. Here, how about, a, how about we enhance this whole situation? Let's go get a calf, and let's get this, and let's get that. Now we got a full-course meal, a meal fit for a king, which, as it turns out, is very appropriate. The meal was prepared at great expense. Think of what it would have cost, a calf, all this. Now, had Abraham lived a day and had guests stop by, 
for dinner. Honey, guess who's coming for dinner? He would not have gotten food from the drive-thru restaurant. Hey, go down to Chick-fil-A. and get. The, he wouldn't have done that. He would have, you know, he spent time and, and effort and money in the making of this meal. And then verse 8, he becomes the waiter, standing there ready to serve them. I never forget when Mike and I were on a trip. <laughs> and these two guys, this is me and Mark, <laughs> these two guys, these waiters were waiting on us, standing in the back of the table like this, ready at our beck and call to service. If a bowl of rice empty, they were Johnny on the spot, replacing that bowl of rice, just standing there at attention. It was so funny. Felt kind of weird that, that meal. And plus, the cats that were walking around were kind of strange too. But this is what Abraham's doing. He's ready to serve, ready to serve. Now, again, what Abraham sees before him are three men. He doesn't see three deities, he doesn't see three angels. He sees three flesh and blood men. Until now, no appearance of the Lord has happened like this. Put yourself in his shoes. What's he seeing here in front of him? Now, let me take you back to verse 5. A very important verse statement is made here. I tell you what, when I saw this, I thought about this more than anything I thought of this whole week uh, regarding Genesis 18. I thought of this one statement. You might think it's rather odd. But at the end of verse, Abraham says, I'm going to bring you a piece of bread. I want to refresh yourselves and so on. And look at the end of verse 5. And they said... So do as you have said. Okay. You want to show hospitality? Go ahead and show hospitality. They, in other words, they accepted his hospitality. They accepted it. They could have said, hey, we're on an important mission here. Don't you know this is the Lord we're talking to here? We can't dilly-dally around. We've got things to do. They don't say any of that at all. And I, I might have said that. They didn't say that. None of that at all. They accept his humble offer of food. Did they really need food? They just, the Lord and two angels. They didn't need any food, okay? They see his burst of activity and trying to get the meal ready. They see this. They see him running around hyper like he is. They, they, they appreciate his service for them. They, they approve of all this. They allow him the privilege of serving them. How gracious of the Lord to allow Abraham the, the opportunity to serve him. That verse really struck me this week. I started thinking about that. I thought, just think, he allows us the opportunity to serve, us, to serve him. He says, you want to serve me? Go ahead. In fact, he wants us to serve him, but he says to Abram, you want to show hospitality? Okay, show hospitality. We'll take our time. We'll let you cook the meal. We'll let you do all this, and, and you can go ahead for it. And God allows us the opportunity to show him honor, to love him, to serve him, to wait upon him. Are you accepting that blessing of the privilege of serving the Lord? We actually get to serve the Lord. The king of kings and the lords love lords. Don't take that for granted. I know we get bogged down and busy with church life, and we have to do this and we have to do that, but we need to think in terms of this is a privilege. We get to actually serve the Lord. He approves of this. He allows us. He wants us to do this, and he says it all through his word. Now, the Bible has a good deal to say on the subject of hospitality, but let me just point out two passages. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. Probably knew this was coming. <laughs> Hebrews 13. Verse 1, verse 13, verse 1, says, Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for, for by this some have entertained angels without even, even knowing it. Didn't even know about it at all. And I think this 
verse has primary reference to Genesis chapter 18, may maybe include Judges 13 as well, uh, maybe some other things, but mainly I think basically Genesis 18. And it also tells us that Abraham did not know who his guests were, at least he did not know who two of them were. If he knew who the Lord was, he certainly didn't know who the angels were. But they are referred to as strangers here. The word to entertain strangers are called here, just like Abraham did. We're to show hospitality. That is a basic characteristic of believers. Believers show hospitality. They show love to people. They show care for people. They show concern for people. They are, are, are will, able and willing to take care of people's needs, or they do their best they can on that. That's what they do. Now, we don't do this for the motivation. I've heard people in my life say, well, you better be careful about entertaining strangers because you may, in fact, be entertaining an angel. And I tell you what, some of the people I've seen that I thought maybe were strangers, very strange people I'm talking to right now, I thought to myself, if these are angels, these are very strange people. I don't want to really be involved in this, I'll be honest with you. But we're not to look for this kind of, that's not what he's saying here. Um, we, we, are, we, we should have the motivation of trying to be a blessing to people, of trying to show the love of Christ to people. Because you never know how far-reaching those efforts will be. You never know. You never know by helping a brother along the way. You never know how God's going to bless that person, by the way, and what you do for the cause of Christ in trying to aid him. You never know what's going to happen. You never know if the Lord in turn is going to bless you greatly in some way for what you've done. That shouldn't be our motive. However, great blessings could come to the person who shows hospitality. Turn over to Matthew 25, Matthew 25, verse 31. Showing hospitality to others is, in fact, showing hospitality to the Lord himself, and what happened, and that's what happened in Genesis chapter 18. It's all the more interesting if Abraham did not know who these people were at the time. Matthew 25, 31. What would you do if Jesus was coming to your house for dinner tonight, by the way? What if, what if you, just somebody else was coming that, not Jesus, another person. Two different reactions probably. Look at Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit down on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. He'll separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right hand, the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. What are you talking about, Lord? Why, when did we see you hungry and feed you or, th or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? When did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. We've got to be careful how we, how we handle these things. Now let me add, although we should be hospitable, yes, don't throw out wisdom and discernment at the same time. The Bible talks about wisdom and discernment too. Don't forget that part of the scripture. There are people out there who are, leech, who are leeches, and who seek harm for your family. Yes, they do. Don't think this is not a reality of life. It is. I've heard horror stories about this, by the way. Use discernment. Hospital, hospitality, yes. Discernment also. 
2 John 10 warns this, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, in other words, a false teacher comes your way, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. Why? That person is seeking to derail believers from the truth. In other words, he says, don't show him hospitality. As a rule, yes, we show hospitality. However, be careful and be discerning. But the heart of the Lord's servant we're looking at now in Genesis 18 is one of humility, one of unselfishness, one that is focused on others, not yourself. That is the heart of God's, ser of God's servant. Secondly, the message to God's servant. That's actually found in verses 9 to 33. Actually, it's a two-part message to Abraham, partly good news, partly bad news. You want to hear the bad news first or the good news first? We're going to hear the good news first. I'm going to summarize these two messages under two questions. We'll just deal with the first one tonight. In the first part of the message, we'll consider the questions as stated in verse 14, because we're going to look at verses 9 to 14. The question stated in verse 14 is this, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? The second message concerns the question in verse 25, shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? And those, in these verses, we will have, uh, have unfolded for us the purpose of the Lord's visit. Why did he come to visit Abraham? Just to receive a meal? No, there's a purpose for this, greater purpose, although God allowed this and blessed Abraham. First message, first part of the message, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Verses 9 to 15. Now, Within verses uh, 9 to 15, we encounter two very different perspectives, people, perspectives who are poles apart. Uh, there is a natural perspective, and there is a supernatural perspective. When it comes to the difficulties of life, when it comes to how you view the troubles that you have in life, there's two perspectives presented here. One, a natural. Secondly, a supernatural. First of all, the natural perspective on life's difficulties, look at verses 9 to 12. Then they said to him, the three men said to Abram after the meal, where is Sarah, your wife? Now we're getting to the purpose of the visit. And he said, there in the tent, Abraham's tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. Behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Sarah and Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. Now, this is the, na our, the natural view of things that are beyond our control of life. Things get out of control in life, we think. Or they are out of control in life, and we, we see that, and our, our view is, wow, this is, this is not good. This is bad. What are we going to do? We throw up our hands, and we, figure, we, we look for a way within our power to solve this issue, this problem. We try to figure it out. Uh, we can't figure it out. It's normal for us to think this way. It's just... Things are out of control. The Lord asked the question in verse 9, where's Sarah, your wife? Does the Lord not know of Sarah's whereabouts? Of course he knows. He knows the whereabouts of everybody. He knows we're here in this church tonight. He knows that. He knows, he knows she was in the tent. He knows where she was, even though nobody could see her. Now, during the meal, Sarah was not present. Did you, Sarah wasn't out there with the guys during this meal because in the ancient Near East, it was expected that ancient, that, that, uh, ancient women... <laughs> like Sarah, it was expected that married women would stay in the tent, not out of the sight of male visitors. That's how they did it back then. And, but, and, but Sarah's in the tent. What's she doing? She's eavesdropping, kind of has her ear up to the tent door and listening to all that's going on, at least part, this part of the conversation. That's, I wish I could have seen that, by the way. <laughs> what's, what's going on out there anyway? 
And I am sure she's taken back when one of the guests mentions her name. She doesn't know who these people are. She doesn't know one of these guys, people is the Lord. She doesn't know that. Nobody, I don't think anybody did it first. What stranger would know this information? <laughs> the Lord even uses her new name to show how up to date he is. Chapter 17, verse 15. Remember, he changed her name from Sar- Sarai to Sarah. And then he says, where's Sarah, your wife? Well, can you imagine you're Sarah and back in the tent, you're listening, eavesdropping, trying to find out what's going on, and you hear this? What? Who are these people out here? At verse 10, the Lord says to Abraham, I'm going to return to you, singular. I'm going to return to you, Abraham, uh, this time next year, literally at the time of reviving. In springtime, I'm returning to you in springtime, and Sarah's going to have a son. Well, that's not new information to us. We have been reading the narrative of Abraham. We've got that, that's a repeated promise from chapter 17, verse 21. How definite is this promise? Uh, look at verse, uh, verse uh, 10. He says, I will surely return you this time next year. That's a very emphatic statement. He's saying, I will without a doubt. You can bank on this. Bank on this. Please, I'm definitely going to return to you. Sarah will have that baby. That's been the Lord's unchanging promise all along. He's never changed. Now, while this announcement being, is being made, the whole time Sarah's listening, the tent door was right behind the Lord, it says. Sarah couldn't help but hear, and the Lord wanted her to hear this. He wanted her to hear this information. Now, verse 11. That's a comment by the narrator, who's, by the way, the writer, who is uh, Moses. He says, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. That's something that we already knew, right? But he keeps... Sounds like he's throwing cold water on this whole deal. Wait a minute. The Lord says you're going to bear a son. And Moses, who's writing, says, yeah, but you've got to understand, this is not a good situation. Now, there's three obstacles that stand in the way of Sarah bearing a child. Number one, Abraham, verse 11. Abraham or Sarah were old. They're old. They're past the prime of life. They're over the hill. They're oldsters, some would say. Secondly, they're advanced in age. They have come to the place where many days, literally many days have passed, many moons have passed. They've seen better days. Abraham is approximately 100. Sarah is about 90. Abraham can think in terms of a century. No one knows the troubles I've seen over the last 100 years. Sarah can nearly think that that long. It's like someone today saying, oh, I lived during the Roaring Twenties. Now, if you don't know what the Roaring Twenties is, first of all, you need to study history. That was the 1920s. Uh, It's like somebody saying, yeah, I know all about the 1920s. I lived through it, if they live today. Thirdly, Sarah was past childbearing. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Biologically speaking, they can't have a baby. They can't. Sorry, they can't. This is simply a reality of life for Abraham and Sarah. What's Sarah's reaction to this? Look at verse uh, 12. Um, By the way, what's her reaction to the stranger she can't see saying this, whoever this person is saying this information? Sarah laughed to herself. Apparently she doesn't laugh out loud. She laughs to herself, it says. It's a kind of laugh that expresses unbelief, quite frankly. That's what it is. And she'll express her faith later, according to Hebrews 11. But for the time being, she's anything but faith-filled. This is, give me a break. I'm past the age of childbearing. Her husband had laughed, remember that, in Genesis 17, 17. Abraham had laughed also, now Sarah joins in the laughter. God had promised them a child, they both laughed. So as I said before, this is the struggle of faith we go through. 
Are we going to believe the word of God or not? Sarah says, after I become old, shall I have pleasure in my Lord being old also? Translate, the, the phrase translated old means I'm worn out. I'm worn out. Am I going to have a baby for real? Somebody said Sarah describes herself as a decrepit old woman in this passage right here. She wonders, how is it possible for her at her age to have pleasure that can either be the pleasure of intimacy or the pleasure of having a child? How can this happen? Now, on a side note, I want you to notice this as well in verse 12. Notice how she sees herself in relation to her husband, Abraham. She, she calls him my Lord. Does that ring a bell? So when you get to 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter's talking about marriage, and it says Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And that's where this comes from, right here. And Peter admonishes Christian women, hey, you need to be submissive to your husbands, <clears throat> just as Sarah was to Abraham. Is Sarah right? Is this an impossible situation? Is it? Yes. It's an impossible situation. It really is. Her perspective is that it's an impossible situation. She is too old to have children. That's true. That's all true. And it's just not going to happen. But understand, this is a natural perception if you leave the Lord out of the equation. That's true. It's, it is impossible apart from the Lord's intervention. Sarah thinks, well, this time has passed. It's over with. It's done. It's not going to happen. That's the natural perspective. Secondly, the supernatural perspective. Look at verses 13 to 15. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I'm so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I didn't laugh. She was afraid. I always like, that's funny. And he said, no, you did, you did laugh. Sorry, you laughed. The Lord knows that Sarah laughed and that he knows she questioned the Lord. He says to Abraham, why did she laugh? Why would she question the Lord? Why would she cast doubt upon his promises? Why would she ever think that God can't do the impossible? Why would we ever think God can't do the impossible? Do we think God can't do the impossible? Do we think that God can't work in our lives? A lot of times we do think that. We're just like Sarah. We think that this can't happen. God can't really do, uh, it's beyond his control here. We don't say that, but that's what, how we act. Actually, this is an insult to God, this statement, this laughter. Why would we ever doubt the power of the Lord? And for the first time in the Bible, we have a question asked that's going to again be repeated in some form or another throughout the scriptures. In context like this, she says, or the Lord says, is anything too hard for the Lord, too difficult for the Lord? Word difficult actually means wonderful. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Meaning, is, anything, is there anything too extraordinary for God to accomplish? Is there anything too incredible, anything that's beyond his scope, anything he can't handle? Is there anything out there he can't do, especially as it relates to a promise he made? If he made a promise, is it possible for him not to fulfill that promise? Is that possible? Now, if the Lord can appear in human form as he did here, I'm pretty sure he can do anything else. In Matthew 19, remember Matthew 19, Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, or they said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, of heaven because the rich man trusts in his wealth, right? Trusts in his wealth. He doesn't want to give up that idol. The disciples said, then who can be saved? My goodness, if a rich man can't be saved, he's got all the wealth. Why, who can be saved? Jesus said, with people, this is impossible. Yes, that's true. But not with God, for with God all things are possible. 
I talked to a guy once about the gospel years ago, and he said, well, I just can't, I, I can't believe this. And I said, why is that? He said, I, I can't accept the virgin birth. It's impossible, he told me. Now, in Luke 1, in Luke 1, the, the angel appears to Mary, and he says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. Mary replies, how can this be? Now, she's not unbelieving, but she's asking a legitimate question. How can this be since I'm a virgin? Legitimate? Answer from the angel, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child should be called the Son of God. It can happen. In fact, the angel goes on to say, you know, you got a cousin named your relative Elizabeth. She's conceived and a son in her old age, it says. And she, who, he goes on to say, she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. You don't think God can do the impossible? When the angel, the angel drawing from the Old Testament says, for nothing will be impossible with God over in Luke chapter 1, he says that, coming from here originally. Understand this, whatever the Lord has promised to do, whatever he's promised to do, he has the power to do it. He has the power to carry it out. Now, this does not mean, as the Word of Faith movement tells us, you know, you can just name it and claim it. If you exercise enough faith, God's going to do something astonishing for you. We're not talking about all that. Uh, that's a heretical movement. What we're saying is that the Lord will keep the promises of his word, even though outwardly the circumstances may be impossible. Not that they seem impossible. They really are impossible, but the Lord will keep his word anyway. That's where the Lord shines the best. When it's impossible, you can count on it. The end of verse 14, the Lord says, At the appointed time, I'm going to return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son made a similar statement in chapter 17, 17, verse 21. It's going to happen, Abraham. Count on it. But why the long wait? Why all this waiting for years and years? God's promised for years and years. You're going to bear a son. You're going to bear a son. And why wait now until they're decrepit old people? Past the time of childbearing until the promise is fulfilled. Why, why wait all this time? <clears throat> all this time? It's because the Lord wants to show us that only... He can do what only he can do. Only God can do what only God can do. Only God can do the impossible. That's what he wants us to know. I want to make sure everybody knows that only I can do this. Nobody else. This isn't natural. This is supernatural. The birth to come is about showing off the Lord, about showing off his power, about showing off his glory. It will be unmistakable as to what happened. It's going to be the Lord's doing, and it's going to be marvelous in everybody's sight. Look at verse 15. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh. She was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. I always like that verse. Sarah, you can deny it all you want to. I, I know you laughed, okay? I know, the Lord knows the truth. She basically lies to the Lord. She ought to be grateful it wasn't like Acts 5 where they got zapped for lying to the Lord. She does it out of fear. That's what it says. Fear drives us to do things that are irrational, doesn't it? I mean, we do things that are highly irrational when we're afraid. Abraham feared the Egyptians in Genesis 12. And he lies about his wife, irrational. Now Sarah was afraid. After taking God, God's promise to task and challenging it, she's afraid. And no doubt she's afraid of this messenger, whoever he is, outside the tent door. So she denies her laughter, which she knows is an inappropriate response. And the Lord says, no, maybe she figured out, oh, this is, must be the Lord. By now, maybe it's dawning on her. She says, he says, no, but you did laugh. Don't try to deny it. Lord's not fooled. She should have confessed it as sin. 
she further compounds the whole issue by lying about it and, and, and denying it. And understand this, that our relationship with God, we worship him in spirit and in truth, right? Truth. We don't hold anything back. Lord, I sinned against you. I did wrong. I, this was wrong what I did. Unbelief or whatever it is. Just know we serve a, a, a gracious and wonderful Lord. He graciously receives our worship. He receives our service. He allows us to serve him. He wants us to serve him. And we can trust him in spite of all the impossible circumstances. There's many things that face us that we're perplexed about. I'm perplexed about that are difficult for you to, uh, to face. But God is the God of the impossible. Always remember that. Don't give in to your fears. Don't give in to your doubts. Trust the Lord. Next week we'll continue with this in Genesis chapter 18. Let's go, ahead, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we're grateful for your word. Grateful for the message that it has for us. Lord, help us to learn from this tonight and be the people you have us to be. Trusting you, Lord, in spite of the difficulties of life. Give us grace to do that, that we might glorify you in these things and honor you before all other people. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.